This episode of Shameless is brought to you by ANZ, the bank focused on improving the financial well-being of all Australians. Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined as always by Melbourne journalist Michelle Andrews, that would be me, and Zara McDonald, that would be you. Cute top knot going on there. Thanks, I'm a bit partial to a top knot at the moment. <laughs> coming up on today's show, the Instagram feud between an influencer and a journalist that we didn't know we needed in our lives, the death of one of the world's biggest names, and then, of course, of course, of course, a deep dive on the Taylor Swift documentary we at Shameless HQ have been waiting for. But first, Sarah Ellis McDonald, how was your week, my fine-footed friend? <laughs> fine-footed. It'll little, never end. I was going to say it's a little bit of an overstatement. My week was wonderful. I went to Tasmania. I think we're suddenly going to become like ambassadors. Well, truly ambassadors for Tourism Australia. How was Tasmania? I've never been. Describe. Uh, um, it was amazing. It was really good. I mean, it's kind of the thing you do when you get to a certain point in your 20s <laughs> where you realize you're not fun anymore. It's like a certain point in your life where you're like, I think I'm an adult now. So I must go to Tasmania with my partner. Um, it was really lovely. I loved Mona and I don't, I'm not so good at art galleries. I wish <laughs> I was someone that could come onto the mic and be like, ah, I just love art. Do you have a favorite artiste? No. <laughs> do you? <laughs> no. What if you had a name? I could name like um, Picasso. Picasso. Yeah, that's about it. That is about the extent of my <laughs> art gallery knowledge. Anyway, it was a wonderful, wonderful place to go. Um, and the rest of Tasmania was amazing. It was the water was just fucking cold. Like props to anyone that lives down in Tasmania. I have called myself a beach hero for months. But I went swimming, but I had felt like I had pins in my legs. Really? It was so cold. It but was like taking the entire an- state cold. Like it gets warmish. It just, the thing about Tasmania, and I would love Tasmanians to come onto our um, episode thread and chat to me about this. I got the sense that it took a little bit for the days to warm up. So it would say 27 and it was like, all right, come on, Tasmania. Like, let's really build to this. Let's really build to this. <laughs> it's like all the elements are against it, but it will get there. Yeah, yeah. It's like a slow, it's like a, it's, it's like an old car trying to get up a really steep hill. <laughs> but it would get there at some point. Anyway. If anyone hasn't been to Tasmania, I would so, so, so recommend going. I had a wonderful time. My recommendation this week while I'm here is just a re-recommendation of what Annabelle recommended in the newsletter, and that is a podcast. The Hollywood Reporter interviewed Florence Pugh this week. You haven't seen Little Women, have you? I have. Okay. Everyone keeps talking about Florence Pugh. You in the office today were like, Florence Pugh? And I was like, no, (laughs) Pugh. No, I just mispronounced it. I knew it was wrong. I haven't. I'm, I'm not across her, and I feel a little bit shamed because I've already been shamed this week that I didn't know that Alec Baldwin well I did know that Alec Baldwin was in 30 Rock we both knew that I just never watched 30 Rock and then I proceeded to be lambasted by the entire shameless podcast community for the last seven days so no I don't know much about Florence Pugh if you're going to tell me I know nothing about pop culture then that's fine Truth. Don't click off the podcast. <laughs> I have to say, when I watched Little Women, I was like obsessed with Florence Pugh's character, but I didn't know it was Florence Pugh. So Florence Pugh's name had been like in my newsfeed and on my Instagram and in headlines for so long. And I was like, oh, fuck, how am I not across this? You mm. know when you feel left out? Mm-hmm. And then I went to Google the actress and it was Florence Pugh. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I fucking get it now. 
<laughs> I'm on board. I'm like, I'm in. I'm in. Anyway, it was a really good interview. She is British, only 24, like younger than us, but a, a complete delight. So if you watch Little Women or Love Florence Pugh, if you're not <laughs> Michelle, listen to that interview. How was your week? It was good. I think I've been confronted by how unpatriotic I might be this week. I've been watching the tennis a lot, like a lot, a lot. And I'm often finding I'm not going for the Australian players. There are none left now. Obviously, the tennis has finished. <laughs> There's no Australian. The Australian sounds Open so, is done. I was going to say, it sounds quite morbid saying there are none left. Well, Ash Barty obviously exited in the semi-final, which was the furthest of any Australian athlete. And I did go for Ash Barty. Of course, that would be a crime not to go for her in any of her games. But when it came to the men... I didn't really get behind. Like Millman, when he played Federer, it kind of struck me as odd that I was going for Roger Federer, not for John Millman, the Australian treasure who really took it to him. And I've had a lot of fights with my family this week over the fact that I don't go for players just because they're Australian. I go for players if I like their personality and like, I don't know, they're like pizzazz, how oh they God, like dress and stuff. So smug of you. Like, I just, I like going for the good people. Do you, but no, it's not smug because everyone hates kidding. me. Like yeah. when I was at... An event this week for the tennis. People were outraged that I weren't that I wasn't going for the Australian players. Are you the same? Do you go for someone just because they're Australian? Absolutely, I do. Ooh. I think it's interesting that you say you were fighting with your family about it, but I probably do it because my family always did. Like mm. you went for the Australian; it's the fun thing to do. I think, to be honest, I like backing a horse, right? Mm-hmm. Not literally, <laughs> but I mean, I like backing a horse, and I like being passionate about going for someone. And it's sort of an easy way to find passion in a duo or two people playing against each other that you're not particularly invested or interested in. I did fall in love with team this week. That sounds like team as in the word, but it's a player's name and I'm obsessed with him. I feel like a lot of people did. That's why I also love the Australian Open. It's like the one year that I actually invest myself in tennis and rediscover or discover players. It is the best time of year. Australian Open time is the best time, particularly if you're in Melbourne. It's like this feverish excitement throughout the whole city. Michelle just said that with like her hands in the air clawed. <laughs> For those who couldn't see and that is all of you. I'm an expressive person. Fucking sue me. What are you recommending? I want to recommend a Jessica Simpson profile in the New York Times. It looks at Jessica Simpson's career trajectory, particularly over the last few years. Do you remember? Uh, this like really jolted my memory when I read this piece. Do you remember Jessica Simpson went on the Ellen DeGeneres show and there were lots of articles coming out straight after about her weird mental state and the interview being very unusual and her behavior being quite erratic. Do you remember that? I have no memory of that. I really recommend you go watch the video because it talks about it in this profile. She is, of course, only doing the profile because she's just released a 400-page memoir and in that memoir discusses her alcohol addiction and her alcoholism at length, including an addiction to pills, including diet pills fascinating read. I am very tempted to go pick up this book. The New York Times profile definitely gave me a little bit of a taste tester and I'm interested because she also goes to town on John Mayer apparently for the majority. I have heard about that. I think a lot of news outlets are leading with the John Mayer angle in the book. It does. It's an uncomfortable read, isn't it? Like Mm. reading someone's perspective on a moment that we all saw, which I actually don't remember, like the Ellen show, and then putting sort of a fresh spin on it Mm. that makes us all look like terrible people for for piling on or 
whatever it might be in that context. Also, I'm very interested as to the team that was around her at that time that let her go on stage inebriated. I find that to be a very, very curious decision. And even that said, maybe they couldn't control her. Maybe she said, I'm absolutely going on. You can't stop me. There was a lot of friction apparently between her and her closest friends during this time and they had to stage an intervention. So I think that's a really interesting addition to the Jessica Simpson narrative because when I think of Jessica Simpson, I think, is chicken is it chicken or fish? Remember that quote? Oh my god. Yeah. We should insert that right here. <laughs> is this chicken what I have or is this fish? I know it's tuna, but it it says chicken. By the sea. <laughs> so stupid. I actually just think of like these boots are made for walking. Because that's just what they do. I was waiting for you to sing that. One but of I, these days. <laughs> I wanted you to have more of a twang. My apologies. That's the best you're going to get. <laughs> One thing I did want to get into before we actually get into the show, Mish, is Doggos of Shameless. Oh, my God. It has been too long. For long-time listeners of the podcast, you will remember at the beginning of 2019, Murphy, the most adorable, I think Cavalier King Charles, but I can't quite – just floopy, like a floopy dog. It's a grumpy dog. Grumpy, floopy dog. One shameless dog of the year. Yes, this is a competition that we created for dogs of the podcast if you want to enter and have your dog be named the official shameless dog for the entire year of 2020 and have murphy hand over the shameless doggo crown how can they enter zara we're going to do a thread in our facebook group we absolutely will we'll pin it to the announcements but twist you plot guys, twist. huge plot twist. You can't just take a photo of your dog because we don't want to be catfished about this or, <laughs> dare I say, dare I say, dogfished. Oh, God. It was there. It was there. <laughs> um, we want you to take a photo of the dog in something Shameless related. We absolutely do. So it could be your dog on a Shameless podcast walk. It could be your dog listening to the podcast. It could be your dog in a shameless tote bag i don't know get creative the most creative entries i think we'll pick 10 like we did last year zara 10 doggos will go into the final and then it will be a public vote another twist where we're going to put it in the facebook group everyone can vote for their favorite dog and then the favorite dog has the honor of shameless dog of 2020 (laughs) and wins not a lot really (laughs) i think i think we'll find you a prize i'm not going to guarantee anything though i don't want to overshoot this and then have nothing to give we'll figure out a prize for you though yeah there's (laughs) It's like the least motivating factor for any competition. Like there'll probably be something, but don't let us guarantee. Anyway, Michelle, let's actually get into the show today. We are starting with a very strange feud between an Instagram influencer and a restaurant critic. This is the feud I didn't know I needed and it populated the Daily Mail sidebar of shame for much of this week. What did you make of the story, Zara? So the story was between an Instagram influencer by the name of Mitchell Orville. You might know him as the partner of Chloe Zepp. The son of Angry Dad. Exactly. The one who used to do all those prank Angry Dad videos. And a, a restaurant critic for The Australian, no less, called John Leithlin. What happened, Michelle, is it all started when Chloe Zepp and Mitchell Orville's manager sent an alert to a media newsletter, which is like a pretty standard thing to do, saying that if any brands were interested in gifting the duo some presents for the birth of their unborn baby, get in contact with the manager. Mm -hmm. Someone sent this to the restaurant critic, John Leithlin, who has a history of calling out influencers wanting free stuff. And he went to town on his Instagram, didn't he? He went to town. And my favorite thing about this feud so far is that neither party has backed down. So John Lethleen, or Lethlin, I don't know how we're going to pronounce it, this is <laughs> the eternal battle between Shameless podcast hosts. I don't know how we're going to pronounce it, but he basically came out and used his now very popular hashtag, which is hashtag 
couscous for comment. He took a screenshot of the call out for free gifts from Mitch and Chloe and posted it on his Instagram feed with the caption, hello, I'm nobody. And I figure if I can get something for free, why not? My reputation for integrity ain't worth a pinch of poo anyway. I hate when people say poo. Like you with Florence Poo, I just hate the word. Yeah, but that was a mistake. I didn't intend (sighs) to do it. I hate it. So this kickstarted quite the feud. Angry Dad got involved and was posting about this on his Instagram story. Mitchell Orville began posting about it. The Daily Mail picked it up and it has just gotten bigger and bigger and more delightful for everyone else in the universe, Zara. Because it's so silly. Like it's just a silly, silly story. But I do feel like this is like the ultimate new media versus old media conundrum because you do have two people in completely different and also competing media spaces who probably don't completely understand the other's line of work. Absolutely. So it didn't stop here. Once it got into the Daily Mail and they began writing news story after news story about it, Mitchell Orville took to his Instagram stories and said this. So I'm starting to get this article sent to me by a few people, so I'm well aware of it. But what's going around at the moment is Instagram couple is rinsed by some food critic for requesting free shit for their offspring or for their baby. So let me just get this straight, just because there's a bit of confusion. So what that's about is our agency obviously sent an email to PR companies about collaborations with brands and companies who want to work now knowing that we're having a child. Because as you know, we work with brands every single fucking day of our lives which I find very rich coming from a fucking food critic who probably goes around eating free food just to write about how shit the fucking satay sauce is. So no, we didn't ask for any free things. Our agency did their job, which is what they're intended to do. So Mr. Food Critic, why don't you do your job? Go back to eating some prime rib and shut the fuck up, buddy. Yikes. I love that he didn't mince his words. I'm not going to lie. I fucking love that he didn't mince his words. Like if that's what he wants to say... Lethleen's not mincing his well, words. there's no mincing anywhere. They're just fucking going for it. And you know what? Go to town, guys. This is a great generational divide. Watching someone who... I don't think Lethleen would be a baby boomer. I don't know. I'm not going to tell him which generation he's from. He is middle age. And Mitchell Orville, who is early 20s. This clash between what young people think advertising looks like and what middle-aged Australians think integrity online looks like is a fascinating one. It actually is very interesting because for as much as I say it's silly or we both joke it's silly, it does say a lot. Lethling then reposted Mitchell Orville's um, Instagram stories again saying, now this is amusing, go to Mitchell Orville, find his story and weep for the future. (laughs) I do wonder, Mish, does this actually matter like is there anything wrong I think this is what I've been asking myself over the last couple of days is there anything actually wrong or (laughs) with wanting free things in the area that we live in I don't think so not personally I mean I don't really like the idea of weeping for the future because some people choose to ask for free product when that's their job online that's not an indication like I hate when influencer culture is used to explain millennial or gen z culture like they're not the same thing in any generation a handful of people will gravitate towards a career like this that does not indicate what gen z nurses and midwives and teachers are like like this is not a weep for the future situation This is the state of social media. And there are people who are John Lethleen's age who would be doing the exact same thing. I don't like age being brought into it as some type of identifier that this is like all young people are selfish and shameless, literally, about how they go about things. I don't think that's the case. All of that said, 
no one's forcing brands to give Mitchell Orville and Chloe Zepp free product. Their management <laughs> is not bribing brands to hand them free shit in exchange for social posts or in exchange just for the opportunity that they might like it and that they might use it. They're giving brands the option. And if brands choose to take that option, it's because those brands know it's a great marketing and branding opportunity. Well, I think the one thing that we're not touching on here yet is there's huge, huge money and there's a huge industry around the parenting influencer game. Like I think you become a completely different influencer and arguably perhaps a more lucrative influencer when you have a baby because there are so many brands that find value in this space. This stuff works for brands, whether they're paying for shout outs or not, there is a reason that some brands choose to send product for free to influencers because clearly in the advertising and marketing world, it works. Thank you, next bitch. And now it is time for the quick and dirty. As always, we bring you the top five stories from the Ruffler and Tumblr oh, of the celebrity news cycle. <laughs> Michelle, Elizabeth, Andrews, what have you got for me today? I love that we're using middle names now. It sounds like I'm in trouble with my mum. <laughs> My first story, nobody can believe Billie Eilish's bad guy samples Sydney's pedestrian crossing sound. That is from Junkie. This went viral on Twitter because there was a video of Billie Eilish and her producer brother creating bad guy and how they brought in all these different sounds to create that now, we'll call it Zara, smash hit. It is a smash hit. It It is a smash hit. It's a hot smash hit. It's a hot smash hit that has that annoying pedestrian crossing sound underneath it. I loved watching the video of that. And I loved everybody getting around it this week. Is it the same sound as Melbourne as well? No. I think Sydney's pedestrian crossings are more boppy. Like oh. they're more techno-y. I'm not a music like nerd, obviously. What, you're no muso? No, I can't say I am. But the Melbourne ones are a bit dull and a bit flat and a bit office <laughs> Office. They are. Listen to them. They oh. sound like office vibes. Do you think that's kind of indicative of Melbourne? Like Sydney's a bit boppier, Melbourne's a bit office Sydney's like the fun beachy cousin of Melbourne and Melbourne's like the serious annoying sister. Do you think that's fair? I love Melbourne like I'm never gonna live anywhere else but we are the more like grunge version of the two. Sydney's like that cool popular girl at school. Well then we've gone from officey to grunge. What's Melbourne if Sydney's the cool popular girl at school? Melbourne's not like. Melbourne's the Billie Eilish. Yeah yeah like the slightly the slightly goth one. You know what Sydney you can be Jessica Simpson will be Billie Eilish. (laughs) My second story, Australian Open 2020, Ash Barty used baby as human shield at press conference. That is from news.com.au, Zara. And of course, this discusses the fact that Ash Barty, after losing her semi-final, went into her press conference holding her niece or nephew. I can't quite remember. Yeah, I think it was her niece, her 12-week-old niece. I found these comments by some tennis commentators really bizarre. Mm. So Ash did go into her press conference with the baby on her lap. And when she was asked about how she played, she kind of said, look, I've got perspective. Like I went straight to my niece. She gave me a smile. She made me smile. It's not the end of the world. And some commentators said it's a a workplace. So it's not entirely appropriate to have a baby there, which I just feel like gets you into some murky, murky water when when you're saying that you can't have babies in a workplace. The second thing they said is that they thought she was maybe not intentionally trying to distract the line of questioning from her own performance. But I just thought that was outrageous. Like you can ask her as a journo, whatever, you like whether there's a baby in the room or not I think it was just very indicative of the person that she is which is incredibly down to earth and somebody who can put sport into perspective for us that as much as we celebrate it and enjoy it there is more to life than sport yes there is I completely agree before I give you my rebuttal I love Ash Barty I think she's incredible I also think that 
there's no issue whatsoever with her bringing a baby into a press conference. But do I agree that the argument that the baby could act as a human shield from really negative commentary or negative feedback? Yeah, I kind of see that. I think it is a slightly tactical move on her behalf. She's allowed to make it. But I do think that was a decision that was an interesting one, that she that she chose to bring her niece into that press conference. I have absolutely no hate for that. I love the fact that she was sitting there with a baby on her lap. I think that's a beautiful image and I think it's a gorgeous moment for her to share. And I love the message that there are more important things in life. Do I think it was tactical and strategic? Absolutely. Well, I don't think it was intentionally tactical or strategic by any stretch, truly. I do think that when it comes to the context of Ash Barty's Australian Open performance, I think that there was a lot of hopes on her from the nation. I don't think that's a surprise, but particularly given the year that a lot of Australians have had, a lot of the line of questioning from journalists was like, how does it feel to potentially be a flag of hope amongst Mm. a lot of hopelessness? That she alone can't fix things and that sport alone can't fix things that it's an important aspect of hope but there are bigger things in the absolutely. world absolutely and let's keep in mind she's 23 and she had the entire nation riding on her shoulders i'm not surprised that that would be a really big struggle for someone in their early 20s power to her i think she's awesome one thing i would like to add is i'm very curious as to how a male tennis player holding a baby in a press conference would have been revered i actually think that if roger federer after his loss walked in carrying one of his kids or carrying a niece or nephew, everyone would be discussing what a top guy he is and what a beautiful moment to bring into a press conference. My third story, the author tour for the controversial book American Dirt has been cancelled over safety concerns. That is from BBC. Zara, I will admit, I have no idea what this story is about. You put this in the quick and dirty. Tell us why you care. So American Dirt is a book that was released very recently and shot to like the top of the New York bestseller list. It was also named by Oprah Winfrey as her book club pick last week which was all well and good but a huge amount of controversy surrounded the book the minute people started reading it and it got really really popular because the novel follows a story of a Mexican woman and her son fleeing the United States after a drug cartel massacre Mm. and the woman who wrote it Janine Cummins is a white woman and I think uh, it sparked a whole heap of really important conversations about the appropriation of stories about how it's so hard for people of color to crack into the writing industry and how white people telling these stories is not always very helpful Um, And it is very interesting to see this book, American Dirt, at the top of the New York bestseller charts when there is so much controversy around it, to the point that Janine Cummins is getting so many threats that she's had to cancel her entire book tour. Mm, That'll be really interesting to see how it affects book sales, right? Totally. My fourth story, Michelle Bridges in turmoil over split from Commando Steve Willis. That is from Who Weekly. Michelle Bridges was charged with drink driving on Australia Day and in the wake of her being charged with drink driving and that report coming out in the Daily Telegraph. She did very, very quickly issue a statement that she is in a bad place, that her long-term relationship with Steve Willis, who she of course met on The Biggest Loser, has ended. And that while she is very apologetic, her four-year-old son was in the car at the time, she is going through it emotionally. This really sparked quite a divide between people. Some were very sympathetic for Michelle Bridges and said that people make mistakes and that we should be forgiving and that we shouldn't judge someone. And other people had a very hard line that there is no excuse for drunk driving or drink driving and that regardless of her recent breakup, it shouldn't have even been included in a press release. It's a really tough one, isn't it? I mean, I think it has to be included in a press release, not to cover up or to make excuse for what she did, because I think the first place that people are going to 
go is to Steve Willis to ask for comment. And I think she has to go straight away. Well, fuck, we're not actually together anymore. Mm. So there's one part of the story. Um, I mean, sure, it could have been used as like a double pronged thing. I'm pretty hardline when it comes to drink driving, I have to admit. I mean, I do think that we need space for people to get better and understanding around alcoholism in general, but that ultimately it's too dangerous for me to have much patience for it at all. I think also, unfortunately, drink driving is incredibly common and lots of us know family members who have done it or who have been victims of it. And I think the consequences of drink driving are pretty disastrous. And ultimately, and I I do sympathize with Michelle Bridges, I understand that people go through stuff and that everyone has mental burden and things that they deal with in their lives. But ultimately, drink driving is one of the classic examples of selfishness. There's Uber, there's taxis, there's Didi, there's Ola. I'm sure you guys are all across the many, many ways that you can get from A to B that don't include you physically driving. And I think if you want to take that risk, you're not only risking your life or your child's life, you're risking everyone else on the road. And I think there is almost no excuse for that. I think that is very well put. My fifth story, Katie Hopkins tricked into accepting fake cupcake award by for those unaware this is the word that we used for the other c word that you might be familiar with fake cupcake award by youtube prankster josh peters that is from the evening standard zara i put this story in did you see it no i feel kind of guilty for this but you're gonna have to explain this one to me too so katie hopkins for those unaware is a uk kind of social commentator i'll call her she is widely disliked I think is fair to say because she is racist she Um, hates Meghan Markle for no particular reason she's pretty sexist she's incredibly incredibly racist fat phobic she's been fired for having such ridiculous outdated misogynistic even views totally and even more than that she's literally just been suspended from Twitter very recently for many many (laughs) of her views and you guys know how much shit flies on Twitter right I say a lot of fucked things to be suspended on Twitter exactly imagine having your entire account suspended well that's at the time of recording anyway so what happened was a youtube prankster by the name of josh peters flew katie hopkins to prague to award her this very fake award to pull off the prank what peters did was he set up a fake website for the cape town collective for freedom of speech now what they did is when she arrived in prague and they presented her with this award they sort of got rid of a lot of the letters around that. So behind it was just the C-U-N-T award and they posed in front of it. And then Katie Hopkins was then suspended from Twitter. I can't even work out if that's just amazing coincidence (laughs) because that's when they announced it on Twitter that that's what they'd done. I mean, Katie Hopkins is... got I can't I, there are no words for it right there's no excuse for anything that she does I don't know how I feel about things like this what do you think is there any excuse regardless of how gross someone is and how abhorrent their views and political beliefs and ideologies are is there any excuse to publicly humiliate it, them that's the word that I keep coming back to like humiliating people is a pretty damning thing to do mm. and it's a pretty uncomfortable thing for other people to watch on I don't actually know I will put my hand up and say I don't know what I think about this story I don't know where I fall it's not something that I would ever personally do because I always want to take the stance that if someone disagrees with me I still want to have some level of respect for them that they're a human and but that then she has such little respect for people as humans when she has her views I know this but is two wrongs don't make a right and like regardless of how bad a person Katie Hopkins may be I would never want to stoop to that level so I think personally I wouldn't want to buy into the idea that oh well she's shit so I'm gonna be shit in return yeah I know but I think there are levels of shit and it's like are they stooping to her level 
completely see this is why I'm so conflicted about it I would love people to come to our Facebook group to talk about this because I would love to know what people think yeah come into shameless podcast community we always have an episode thread pinned to the top of the group on Monday morning so do you think this is okay do you think it's verging on nastiness and bullying where do you sit on this because I don't really know I wouldn't I don't really like it I think it's funny at the same time it's like one of those things you laugh at and then you start to think deeply about it you're like (laughs) Oh, should I be laughing at that? Anyway, is that all you've got for me? That is all I've got. Coming up after the break, the death of Kobe Bryant and the Taylor Swift documentary that we just can't stop talking about. But first, a word from our sponsor. Just a quick note before we jump in on this one. This segment will cover the details of a sexual assault case and may be triggering for some listeners. Last week, a helicopter crash in Orange County, California, claimed the lives of nine people. One of them was a basketball star so famous that he only went by one name, Kobe. For the few of you who aren't familiar with the 41-year-old sports star Kobe Bryant, he was widely regarded as one of the most accomplished basketballers of all time, having won 18 all-star accolades and five NBA championships across his 20-year-long career. In the aftermath of Bryant's death, as well as the death of his 13-year-old daughter Gianna, six family friends and the pilot, the world has grappled with one big conundrum. How do we remember a man who brought so much joy to so many, but who was also accused of doing something horrific in his life? time. Zara, let's start at the beginning. Where were you when you found out that Kobe Bryant died? Because I think this will become one of those where were you moments. Yeah, I think it already has because I think it's a conversation I've already had with so many people. My boyfriend got a text message, I think, and woke up and like gasped quite loudly and he's not a very dramatic person. So I was pretty, he was pretty taken aback and I think given I'm not uh, really an NBA fan, given I'm not really across basketball, I think it took me a couple of hours to really understand the gravity of this news and I think that there would be a a lot of people similar to that, a lot of women listening to this podcast who might not love NBA as much as the next person and where it might have taken a good chunk of reading and sort of a good sussing of mm. the public sentiment to understand how huge love for Kobe Bryant was and how much of an icon he was to so many people. Yeah, absolutely. I was also in bed. Mitch got an Apple News notification, you know, and it was Monday morning. So it was the public holiday and we were planning a sleep in, but he actually looked at his phone at 6.50 in the morning just to take the time and the Apple News push notification was up on his screen and he was the same. He sat right up in bed and told me and I'm a bit different to you because I think I was across Kobe Bryant a little bit more like some of our other listeners who are either into sports really closely or into basketball more specifically, but it did still surprise me how much this affected so many people. And I think celebrity deaths are so interesting in that way and that they can really shift the mood of millions of people, entire countries. It was a very somber day on Monday and throughout the week. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what intrigued me the most is I was in Tasmania with my boyfriend and I feel like we spent the next two or three days just talking about it, like on car trips, out for lunch at dinner in dead time. And I think it's fascinating how you try to make sense of celebrity death when it doesn't affect you, not really. Mm. I think it affects communities of people in terms of who they are inspired by and who they are deeply invested in, but it doesn't affect your day-to-day life. Kobe Bryant had no real hold over my life at all because I didn't know that much about him. And yet I still spent days after that talking about it, thinking about it. And I remember saying 
to my boyfriend at the time, okay, who would this be like dying in sort of my world? Because mm. um, we all kind of live in different worlds. And he was like, maybe you're Beyonce. Like maybe this would be your Beyonce or your Taylor Swift. Like that's the impact. And I think having conversations like that are incredibly helpful for perspective. Mm, absolutely. Before we go any further, I do really want to list all the victim names. Please because do. one element of this story, and I think it happens whenever a celebrity is involved in a tragedy that kills multiple people, is that, yes, the celebrity commands a lot of the news cycle. Of course they will. The public has has great vested interest in that one person, but the other victims rarely get any airtime. And I want to include their names. Of course, there was Kobe Bryant and Gianna Bryant on that helicopter flight, but there was also baseball coach John Altabelli, his wife, Kerry, their basketball playing daughter, Alyssa. So three people from one family. There was mother and daughter, Sarah and Peyton Chester, Mamba Academy basketball coach, Christina Morza and pilot Ara Zabayan. They all lost their lives and their lives are just as important. I just want to include that because I think some Sometimes these people get forgotten and that would be really, really hard to be their loved one or their family member and not see their names anywhere. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that would have been incredibly hard for the families uh, involved in this tragedy is the flippancy of the media cycle in this time. I despise the flippancy and the hamster wheel of the 24-hour news media cycle in times like this because I think it was TMZ who broke the news. It was TMZ who kept breaking the news before next of kins had been notified, before families had been told. And I think it's such a sad indictment on our industry, Michelle, where media outlets take a risk on being right in order to be first. And it's like these people are characters rather than people. The other thing I kept thinking about is who the fuck was leaking to TMZ? Yeah, I know. That's such an interesting point. And I am also disgusted that people in the media choose to put being first and getting website traffic over being respectful of families who have just lost a loved one. TMZ leaked the news before some of Kobe Bryant's family members knew he had died. They found out via the news and I I despise the fact that that is possible. I would hope that people would be respectful all the time, but it's simply not the case. The Los Angeles County Sheriff said in a statement, it would be extremely disrespectful to understand your loved one had perished and to learn about it from TMZ. That is just wholly inappropriate. I do want to applaud publications like the Los Angeles Times. I mean, no surprise here that TMZ and LA Times have different standards with these types of things, but they didn't release a report. They were talking to readers on Twitter, but they didn't release anything until it was confirmed by police and I think that's how it should be for everyone that's the standard there was a really great piece in the New York Times by Mark Tracy and he listed all of the mistakes that media publications made because they were so rushed in getting this out I mean America's ABC News got it wrong in their television report they got the number of victims wrong they implied that all of Kobe Bryant's children died when that is not the case President Donald Trump no surprise here tweeted that four people had died when in fact nine people had BBC did a segment on Kobe Bryant's death and didn't use footage of Kobe Bryant. They accidentally used footage of LeBron James, which is, again, not okay on any level. Yeah, that's quite a layered mistake, that one. I read a really, really brilliant piece this week by Jill Filopovich, who's a feminist writer and a lawyer. And I think it was one of the best pieces I've read in a really long time. I'm not sure if you got your eyes over this one, Mish, but she started by saying, I'm not a basketball fan nor a Kobe fan, but I understand the irrational impact a celebrity death can have on even a distant admirer. We live in what feels like an increasingly cynical culture, that there is something about the young, beautiful, talented and famous that still thrills 
thrills us is less a sign that we're shallow and more that we're still optimistic, still capable of being awed. Mm. I really liked that perspective. I think when we talk about celebrity, I think there's this real sense that in order to be interested in celebrity, we must be shallow. But I don't think that it's that at all. Mm, Not at all. I do find it interesting before when you gave the example of Beyonce and Taylor Swift as a comparison. And I totally understand that. But I think even with sporting heroes and sporting stars, it's another level. I think when you are obsessed with the team and listeners of the podcast will know I'm obsessed with AFL and obsessed with the Richmond Tigers. I think it's a different set of circumstances where week on week, your team is almost going to battle, going to war. There will be a winner. There'll be a loser. And in every game, heroes emerge and captains and leaders emerge. And I think that amount of investment in one team where there's a winner and a loser week on week develops this level of adoration and admiration for people that probably can't be mirrored in music or culture. I think I have to agree with you. It's almost godlike, yeah, isn't it? it's deity. It? It's really deity. And I think maybe the comparison with music and pop culture is this idea of stan culture as the difference. I think one thing I found most interesting in this entire story is that it really showed that we don't know how to tell people stories when they go. It's like we're all learning about this together, that when someone dies, it's messy and it's complicated and very, very uncomfortable to talk about who they were as a whole person and not just pick and choose the elements that we want to talk about. Absolutely. Well, we're talking about these people and we're trying to sum up their lives in what, 500 words or less when they've only just passed away hours ago. We've never been in this situation before across history. Typically with newspapers, people would have 24 hours to come around to things, would have 24 hours to think about how they were going to represent one person's life. But because the Kobe Bryant news was broken so abruptly and so callously, it was almost like people were very totalic and very black and white with how they wanted to talk about his life. No one had processed the news properly. No one had done adequate reading perhaps on his life and his story so that everyone was kind of divided into two camps. People completely lacked nuance to be honest in how they wanted to talk about Kobe Bryant and while I can understand that I totally understand that there needs to be time and space to grieve someone and to give their family members time to grieve them as well it was interesting to me that in our group and widely on the internet people not only didn't want to discuss Kobe Bryant's sexual assault allegation, they didn't even want it mentioned. Some people on Twitter were angry that journalists included that in their story as if it shouldn't even be remarked upon once he has passed. I think in the first 24 hours of this story, it was so telling how grief kind of warps your sense of logic and you kind of can't make sense of things. And I think you and I made a really conscious decision on that Monday that we would give it... 12, 16, 18 hours before we let the nuance through because A, it was a long weekend and there's only three of us moderating a group and I don't think you're going to have a smart nuanced conversation when people are grieving and mourning so deeply. Mm. But second to that, because those conversations don't have to happen the moment he goes, especially when it's so shocking. We're not going to be rational. We're not going to be thoughtful. I don't think those conversations are going to be helpful. I think we're so desperate for immediacy to have conversations right here and right now when sometimes we can have them better and smarter when we wait. And I'm not saying we have to wait very long. I'm saying all we have to do is wait about 24 hours. It's almost like taking a collective breath in Mm. before we actually go there. Before we talk too much about Kobe Bryant's legacy, Zara, let's actually go into details of the sexual assault allegation from 2003, because I think lots of the people in our community in particular 
haven't read anything about it. They haven't even touched the story yet. I think people find it too hard and it is hard. I think I've been madly trying to make sense of this for a week now. And I think when things are hard, we avoid them, but we cannot avoid this. I think it's so important for us to understand why we celebrate the people we do, why those people are invariably men, how we can protect women when they report assault, how we can learn to be better through all of this. Mm -hmm. And also how we talk about people when they're gone in their fullness, like in their wholeness, if that's even a word. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think what I wanted to do is go through some of the details of this, because one comment that keeps coming back is we shouldn't talk about it because he was never convicted. And that's a huge issue I have with how we talk about sexual assault cases and allegations. For those aren't across this at all, prosecutors did inevitably drop the case because Kobe Bryant's accuser decided not to testify against him. Instead, she opted for a settlement, the details of which have never been made public. Apparently, and this Kobe Bryant came out and said this, no money was involved in the settlement. It was instead a public apology. So we need to get that out of the way. But Zara, the stats show unequivocally that it is near impossible to prosecute a rapist. Now, according to the Washington Post, this is an American statistic, and I'll pull this out because it is an American case that we're talking about. 0.7% of rapes and attempted rapes end with a felony conviction of the perpetrator. 07 99.3% do not end up that way. So when people come forward and say no conviction was ever reached, Yeah, because it's really fucking hard to reach a conviction and that is not an accurate representation of whether or not the assault occurred. I think back home, I think it's important to recognise how hard it is to prosecute these things back home. CASA, the Centre Against Sexual Assault, reported that only 17% of reported sexual offences result in conviction. Now, remember that 17% of reported convictions in 2005, which is about the time that this assault allegedly took place, the Australian Bureau of Statistics estimated that only 19% of victims of sexual assault in Australia reported the incident to police. So we're talking about 17% of 19%. A recent study done by ABC last week found that in Australia, one in five women withdraw their charges when they do report this to police. Absolutely. So what actually happened? If you haven't read about this, according to the New York Times in 2003, Kobe Bryant stayed at the Cordillera Lodge and Spa. There he met a concierge assistant who showed him to his room. Later on in the night, he asked her to come back and give him a private tour of the hotel. Upon doing that, he invited her into his room. They began kissing. Both parties say that that was consensual. Where this differs is what happened next. Apparently, according to his accuser, the next few minutes, she was raped by Kobe Bryant. He says they went on to have consensual sex. Now, this is a quote from that New York Times story. Prosecutors seem to have a strong case. According to court documents, an examination of the woman at a hospital revealed a bruise on her neck and tears in her vaginal wall. Both her underwear and Kobe Bryant's shirt were bloody. Bryant told the police he had not explicitly asked for consent. There's a really, really uh, in-depth piece on the Daily Beast that was written a couple of years ago in light of Kobe Bryant's retirement about this. We'll put that in the show notes as well if you want to do some reading on this. But we're pulling out some of the details because we think it's important that people be across details of these kinds of things before having an opinion. Another element of this, Mish, that I found really hard to read, and I have to say that Daily Beast story is incredibly hard to read. It is really difficult to read. It was when they were going through quotes from Kobe Bryant's police interview. And at one point when the police described the accuser as attractive, Bryant corrected them. She wasn't that attractive, he said. Then when officers asked him about finishing, 
He replied, I didn't finish a fucking thing. I jerked off when she left. He lied about anything taking place until they said that semen was found inside of her and he had to agree that yes, something did actually happen. I think I'm including those quotes because I think they speak to tone and character in the moments after you've been accused of something like that. And I don't like the tone. The other thing that he said in this police interview that I didn't love was he said, I should have done what Shaq does. And this is an allegation, an unfounded one, by the way, about his teammate Shaquille O'Neal. He said, I should have done what Shaq does. Shaq gives them money or buys them cars. He has already spent $1 million. Yeah. Another element of this story that's really important, and I can't believe that I saw this in the Facebook group because our Facebook group is very progressive and very feminist and a lot of conversations around sexual assault cases often include the tagline, listen to women or believe women. And one thing that I saw this week was, well, why should we believe her? She was probably in it for money, which is a disgraceful allegation, particularly when once you do your research, you'll learn the accuser never asked for money. It shouldn't be important, but I think it is for context sake. She's from a very wealthy family this woman doesn't need money she also asked to be anonymous at a request that was blatantly ignored by Bryant's legal team who named her no less than six times exposing her to the world they also slut shamed her and suggested that the tears in her vaginal wall may have been caused by having sex with up to three different men within three days I think it's important that we get across this story and when we talk about this woman because this week has been incredibly hard for Kobe Bryant's family it has also probably been incredibly hard for the woman who accused him of assault in 2003 and truthfully assault victims everywhere I think the way that we spoke about this woman back in 2003 tells us a lot about how we consider victims of sexual assault. Renee Franiewicz, who is a professor of psychology at Aurora University, watched the media coverage of the Kobe Bryant case back in 2003 with interest and decided to conduct a study later of all of the media coverage. She found that more than 40% of news stories questioned the truthfulness of the woman's account. That's 40% who are putting some sort of editorial on a news story. Only 7.7% questioned Kobe's honesty. About a quarter included positive comments about his athletic career, more than 20% included positive comments about him as a person. By contrast, only 5% of news articles had anything positive to say about the woman. If we're talking about a woman who withdrew charges, I think we absolutely need to talk about the media coverage that can really impact a case and can really impact rape myths and rape culture. I wanted also, Mish, to quote Mark Shaw, who is an attorney and an author who covered the case for ESPN and US Today. And he wrote at the time, according to Think Progress, with her identity known, her past sex life revealed, her mental state common knowledge and her life in shambles due to constant anguish about the motive behind the charges, it is no wonder she threw in the towel. And above all other quotes, let's keep in mind the quote that came from Kobe Bryant himself. After this was withdrawn, he issued a statement. Now, I'm going to read the statement almost in full because... This is really friggin' important when we talk about Kobe Bryant's legacy. First, I want to apologize directly to the young woman involved in this incident. I want to apologize to her for my behavior that night and for the consequences she had suffered in the past year. Although this year has been incredibly difficult for me personally, I can only imagine the pain she has to endure. He went on to say, I also want to make it clear that I do not question the motives of this young woman. No money has been paid to this woman. She has agreed that this statement will not be used against me in the civil case. Although I truly believe this encounter between us was consensual, I recognize 
recognise now that she did not and does not view this incident the same way I did. After months of reviewing, listening to her attorney and even her testimony in person, I now understand that she feels she did not consent to this encounter. He issued a public apology over this incident and I think it's really important to remember that. And what I find so interesting in general about this, Zara, is that people don't want to talk about this story because it's almost as if acknowledging that Kobe Bryant may have raped someone is calling him evil or calling him a monster. And I don't agree with that at all. I think it's really important that we push back on the monster myth that all rapists are evil men. They're not. If one in five Australian women have been sexually assaulted, and that is what the stats indicate since the age of 15, the difficult reality is that one in five Australian men may be perpetrators of that violence. Maybe our brothers, maybe our uncles, maybe our friends, maybe our university tutors. Do I think every man who has sexually assaulted a woman is wholly and completely evil? No, I don't. I think a lot of Australian men, a lot of American men, a lot of men around the world disrespect women and have a fuckload of work to do to be better men. But it is so important that we think about this with nuance and that we discuss it regularly because men who commit rape and men who sexually assault women have to be capable of growth. We have to talk about the redemption story. We have to be able to talk about this as something that is occurring en masse every single day. Because if we don't, and if we act like every rapist is evil, then we have no room for change. And I don't think I want to live in a world where we accept that men will be raping women at the rates that they already are. We need to talk about this in a way where men are capable of doing and being better. And if it's true that Kobe Bryant raped this woman, do I think he's evil? No, I think it's an important part of his story. And it's one that we need to talk about if we want to help the many, many women listening to this podcast and around the world who have been physically and emotionally terrorized that was well put sorry (laughs) no but I think it's so it's so true we need room for growth people are flawed no one is all good or bad and I think like I said before we need to remember people wholly in all their glory and fallibility we need to tell the truth and I think that's what a lot of stories failed to do they failed to tell the truth people get better and I think they grow from bad things It seems like Kobe Bryant did. They can impact. I think someone can impact you positively and have impacted somebody else negatively. That's the way of the world. All of these things can be true at once. Jill Filopovich had a beautiful quote. Uh, It's a little bit of a long one, if you don't mind me reading. She said, there is no shame in grieving the end of a human life. It is good to feel, especially for the people who knew and loved the person who died. No matter how painful or complicated a person's legacy, considering their death with softness and grace calls on all of us to draw from the best parts of ourselves. That same work of compassion also calls on us to remember that no person is an island. All of our lives leave ripples. Some lives are tsunamis. Compassion is not summarizing the beauty of the wave. It's picking through the wreckage, reckoning with who was hurt. All without honesty isn't respect. It's a myth. Admiration of only the easy parts is fantasism, not reverence. Hello, friends. I am popping in with Zara just to make a really quick announcement. We will not be doing another major Melbourne live show until September this year, Zara. We are postponing it a little bit. So if you are from Melbourne and you want to catch up with us live before then, you need to come along to one of our little mini events. And the first one we want to tell you about is Tea with Jam and Claire. It is a kind of live show, isn't it, Mish? It's on Thursday, February 13th, so not too far away at Melbourne Town Hall. Doors open at 7, the event starts at 8, and tickets 
cost $45 or $35 per concession. And even better, if you do book in a group of four or more, you get a $10 discount off every ticket. So if you want to come and see one of our shows this month, we've got one at February 13 at Melbourne Town Hall. Exactly. We'll be talking there all about what it's like to work with your friend, why we think women should be taken seriously for their interests and everything about Shameless and Basically everything about us, Sarah, for anyone who just can't get enough Monday to Thursday, which is definitely more than enough. Please still come. (laughs) The link to buy tickets will be in the show notes. If you follow us on Instagram, we'll also put a link in our Instagram stories. We can't wait to see you there. Back to the show. Three, two, one. It was the documentary Taylor Swift fans had been waiting for, Miss Americana, landing on Netflix on Friday, an 85-minute documentary detailing Taylor Swift's falling out of favour with the public in 2016 and how she decided to start talking about politics after a decade of silence. Mish, tell me what your first thoughts were about the doco. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think I had mixed feelings going into watching it because there were quite mixed reviews. Well, I remember when we watched the trailer together, I had a really low bar for this because I turned to you after we watched the trailer and I thought, if this is some very contrived piecing back together of her image that doesn't feel particularly, dare I say, buzzword authentic, (laughs) I'll be kind of annoyed and it will be annoying to watch. So my bar was low and I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I was surprised as well. I think what struck me almost immediately was how lonely Taylor Swift has been for quite a long time. That was such an omnipresent theme throughout the entire documentary that the higher her star has risen, the more isolated she has become. Like if you think about the key characters throughout that documentary who were there throughout the years, it's really only Taylor Swift's mum, her dad, and now Joe Alwyn, her partner, but and Abigail, sorry, her best friend as well. But there were no real friendships that formed that were formidable. There were no real women around her, really. It seemed like she was kind of operating in a team of middle-aged guys. Well, I have thought about this in the hours after I've watched it. And I do agree with you. There is this incredible thread of loneliness that goes through the documentary. Joe Alwyn is basically a non-player, though when he does come in, it's quite lovely, which we will touch on. But he's very obviously absent from this documentary. But I also thought her female friendships were pretty deliberately absent too. I think given that she became famous at 16, much of her friends are famous. Mm. She's copped a lot of flack about that in the past. And if a lot of her formative female friendships are famous women, it wasn't going to look good in this context. That's a good point. But I mean, how can you even maintain a friendship with the lifestyle that she clearly has? I mean, how often was she flying around the world? She was talking about how her She was talking about how the events for her life are plotted out two years in advance. There is no room really for socializing or for living in everyday life apart from the one year between 2016 and 2017 that she completely took out of the public eye. How terrifying does that sound that your your life is planned so meticulously Mm. that you have very little control over it? It kind of makes more sense to me as to why Ed Sheeran keeps sort of fucking off from the public eye, to be totally honest. It became really clear to me through this, I guess, about a couple of things, how much we rip people down when they become successful because I think we assume success cushions them Mm. and that the success can be a counter to our criticism. But I kind of did think as I was watching this. And I don't know if this is too dramatic, but we kind of ruin people a little bit. Yeah, I think so. I think what really stood out to me was when Taylor Swift was talking about how she won 
two albums of the year at the Grammys, two years in a row or consecutively, and that from that point onwards, the bar was set so impossibly high that any album or any piece of music that she released or any piece of art that she released that didn't hit that standard was deemed an immediate failure. And I find that so interesting because if you go through a lot of the music critique of her work, it's kind of scathing. And I, as I'm a Taylor Swift fan, I've put my hand up and well, said so that I. so many times on the podcast before, but it is interesting how scathing people are of her work. And I wonder if that was her first piece of work out into the universe, if we'd be that scathing, or if it's simply that she will never reach potentially the accolades that she did when she was 24, 25. And it is kind of a shame that when someone's successful, if they don't continually exceed that level of success year on year on year, we suddenly deem them a failure as if all their previous work is null and void it is a bit like that and I think that's very indicative of the world that we live in not just with famous people but I think we live and operate on such a hamster wheel that sometimes we're a bit like that with ourselves that we do one thing and it's like okay well what's next almost everything up until that point is pointless or irrelevant and doesn't matter I also was surprised by how similar I felt like my belief system growing up was to hers. And I think one thread that runs through this entire documentary is her fixation as a young girl on this idea of being good. Like she only wanted to be good in the world. She only wanted to operate as a good person. And I think I often subscribe to that similar belief system that to be good, it meant that you didn't make people uncomfortable, Mm. that the people in your orbit were always comfortable. And I think she lasted like that a little too long in the public eye but I was quite similar I think the only thing that changed that was maybe this job because in order to do things like this you kind of have to make people uncomfortable and I think she's realizing that too then in order to speak politically you have to make people uncomfortable it's interesting that you gleaned from that that she was talking about being a good person a lot of what I gleaned was she was trying to be a good girl and that she had to subscribe to this very rigid idea of what femininity is I don't think that she wanted to be a good person I think she was obsessed with this idea of good generally and I don't good girl is what it stood out to me as totally but I also think it meant that her that people would perceive her as being good and having a good impact in some way, shape or form. Well, you saw all of the scenes and for anyone who hasn't watched it, please do go and watch it. It's on Netflix right now. But all of the scenes where 22-year-old Taylor Swift would sit across from a middle-aged talk show host and say, well, I'm just 22, I'm just a singer-songwriter, I talk about love and romance, who wants my opinion? And she would get high fives, she would get cheered on by the audience. Fist pumps. She would get fist pumps as if to say yes, young woman, your opinions don't have a place in the public domain. We would like you to just shut up and sing. Even the way that she was dressing, which was very princessy. And when I think there was this really stark moment in the documentary where they went back and she arrived at a red carpet in that Cinderella horse mm-hmm. and carriage. And it was definitely the brand that they were trying to sort of craft around her, but it clearly didn't work. Wesley Morris wrote for the New York Times a really interesting review that I'll pop in the show notes. And he wrote the most absorbing parts of Miss Americana involves Swift's reckoning with the disillusionment of dislike, not simply other people's but her own. When she's watching footage of herself on a video set and says, I have a really slappable face, it's a throwaway self-deprecation, but it's also a really shocking symptom of the toll of her strange public life. She has this obsession with likability and Mm. dislike, and even when she's sitting in front of this screen when she's recording, sorry, when she's filming the me video clip and she says I have a really slappable face in the next scene I'm going to try to be more likable it's sort of interesting to me because at this point in their career they're trying to prove that she doesn't care as much about what people think and yet she's still obsessed with how her face looks and how people are going to perceive that I'm really glad you brought that up because I think 
this film, this documentary was shot at a time when she was going through the change. She has definitely not reached self-actualization because even when she was talking about her disordered eating patterns, she was going through photos of herself and kind of pointing out her tummy that didn't exist. She was pointing to things going, see, this would bother me in the past. This bulge here. couldn't see anything. Couldn't see anything. And when she turned to the camera, she said, oh, well, I'm not going to starve myself anymore because would I rather look sick or would I rather look fat and that dichotomy of I either look sick or I look fat still says to me that she hasn't fully gotten past those body image issues and I think that's a really important point with this documentary that she has not reached the end goal yet it's not as if she has now developed into a completely different person I don't think we ever do that I think this documentary really captures a really pivotal point about your 20s where we are constantly redefining ourselves constantly shedding our skins and slowly getting to who we want to become well I think it's interesting in the context of her being famous so young there's a a really searing quote towards the end of the documentary where she says they say that when you sort of are stuck at the age that you become famous Mm. in terms of maturity and she's like it's been a race for me to catch up to 29 and I think that's maybe the mood of the film that she's trying to catch up to 29 but she's definitely not there yet there was a really interesting story and review in the Atlantic by Spencer Cornhaber and he wrote the truth is that Miss Americana does not depict a drastic change but rather a tough somewhat deflating process of self-recognition and I think that kind of nails it to me It's hard to pin down the mood of this documentary. It's really hard. It's not hopeful. It feels kind of realistic. Like it's not this overly earnest, hopeful ending where she's a completely changed person and suddenly she's going to start screaming from a soapbox. Mm. There are elements of that, but it is also kind of that deflating sense that it took her a while to catch up to who she wanted to be. Yeah. I want to talk to you about Joe Alwyn and his presence in the documentary and how I loved that they did it that way. I know that Joe and Taylor have an incredibly private relationship. They don't want to let the public in. There have been rumors that they're either engaged or already married that I don't think may ever be resolved. They may never tell us what the state of their relationship is. But I loved that he was present in the documentary without physically being shown really at all. There are a couple of scenes where he and Taylor were hugging from the side or from behind where we kind of caught his profile, but not even his full face. He didn't say a single word, but we saw saw Taylor writing a song for him, performing a song for him, pausing to mouth I love you while she was doing it. You could tell that some of the videos he was shooting because you could see his shadow. I think the way they brought him into the film was really lovely. It's, it's sexy. It makes you feel like the biggest sucker in the world, doesn't it? Because mm. the scene when she um, walks off stage and she's talking to people and high-fiving and then she sees him and she just like sprints like, like 200 metres in order to hug him. You're like, oh my God, why am I feeling the things that I'm feeling <laughs> for these people that I don't know? But I thought it was a really beautiful addition and I think very indicative of how they want their relationship to be framed publicly, which is just a subtle acknowledgement that yes, they have a very strong, very stable, very loving relationship, but nobody else will actually have any insight into the detail of minutiae of that. One closing statement. My final topic that I want to discuss before we wrap the episode up is her becoming increasingly political. I don't think I held 
enough sympathy or enough understanding perhaps as to why Taylor Swift was so apolitical for so long. And I think that's because I'm someone who grew up in Melbourne, a very progressive, incredibly progressive city. And I grew up in a progressive family. And I think when you watch this documentary, you realize that Taylor Swift is a woman who was born into Tennessee under quite strict Christian values. And she needed to redefine that herself. I mean, even her father's influence over her, and it was a very protective influence, was one of don't stir the pot don't tell people what you think and I found that fascinating I have to say I think I completely misread her foray into being political I think you'll be able to get grabs of me on this podcast talking about her um starting to talk about politics and I was kind of a bit cynical about it I thought it was calculated and deliberate and a bid to be relevant a little Mm. bit, that it all happened at once. But it was very, very different to that. I thought she was kind of commodifying social movements a little bit in her film clips. But in reality, what happened was something just snapped in her. And I think she finally pushed back on so many middle-aged men in her team who told her not to say anything, who told her it would ruin her career, who reminded her of how damaging it was for the Dixie Chicks who spoke up against the Iraq war back in, what, 2000 or so. Yeah. That that backdrop is incredibly important for us to understand. And not just that, the backdrop of her sexual assault case where she countersued a DJ for $1 after he groped her and that groping was caught in photographs and seen by seven witnesses. And I, what I really loved, that one of the standout moments of this documentary for me were Taylor Swift's recollections of that court case and how brutally she was examined and cross-examined and how much she was kind of depicted as an unruly woman for bothering to try and countersue this man and how in that case, I mean, it ties back to what we just discussed, Sarah, with Kobe Bryant. So many women are powerless and feel powerless and feel mentally assaulted basically by that court system and the trial well the sense that I got from her through that trial is that the trial itself was almost more traumatic than what almost happened absolutely and it was quite defining for her in terms of whether she decided to be political or not I mean I went into this documentary incredibly cynical and with a very very low bar because I really didn't like the trailer I worried that it would be an image correction it is an image correction I think it will work pretty pretty well the reviews are generally pretty positive Mm. which is not an easy thing when you're Taylor Swift. I think people want to throw stones, but I think it's pretty hard to sit down and watch this documentary and not see the shades of grey. Yeah, and not see how tall poppy syndrome, even in the US, where tall poppy syndrome does not thrive to the level it does here in Australia, how much that damaged her and made her literally retreat completely from her career for a year. Exactly, Mish. This has been a long episode, but I think that's all we've got time for. Thank you so, so much for spending your Monday or if it's Tuesday or if it's Wednesday, Thursday or Friday, (laughs) whenever you're listening with us. We so appreciate it. We would love for you to come follow us on Instagram. We are at Shameless Podcast. We share a lot of stuff on there, not just self-made memes about Zara McDonald, my little friend, but also just Your fine-footed friend. My fine-footed friend. Just stuff that we care about, stuff that's happening tickets to shows everything in between so that's at shameless podcast other than that we will see you on thursday for a very special in conversation episode see you then bye (laughs) (laughs) oh 
hi, it's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hansen here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week. Now, every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a time <laughs> to be in your ear holes. So essentially, each episode, we unpack the real life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in mm-hmm. their lives, which let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to our show, please do head to your favourite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.